could be said about Genesis chapter 1. In fact, there are tons of book, books that were written on this very chapter. Barrels of inks, ink have been poured out on paper to discuss the opening chapter of the Bible. So I can't say that all that there is to say about Genesis chapter 1, and you can thank me for that later, nor will I say all that needs to be said about this chapter. My goal in going through this book of Genesis is not to find interesting things to talk about and then use that as a springboard to tell you uh, more about what I know, because ultimately the goal here is not for you to find out more of what I know, but to, but to find out what God has revealed to us in His Word. And that's why I think it's important for us to systematically work our way through the Scriptures so that we can see what God says. And so my goal in this study of Genesis is to understand what is written, to show it to you, and then show how that connects to Moses' overall theme and point of the book. So to begin, we need to see what this chapter is about. If you had to describe what this chapter was about in one word, what would it be? Moses gives us several clues to that answer, what this chapter is about. The first clue that I always look for in finding what the subject or the topic of a given passage is, is repetition. Authors often use the same word or concepts, uh, the same word or concept over and over again in order to show you what a specific show you what they're talking about. Now that doesn't always work in finding what the author is is talking about, but most of the time it does. For example, if you come up to me after the service and you hear me talking about and I'm talking to someone else and you hear the words basketball and NBA finals and Dirk Nowitzki and Dallas Mavericks, and Miami Heat, and basketball, and some of these same sorts of concepts and ideas come up over and over again, then you would conclude that our conversation is about basketball, right? And, and so you would instantly know what I was talking about. And, and sometimes we get too bogged down in the details of Scripture. We're trying to find out this little magical phrase, something that's going to pop out at us, that we miss the main point. And so what I'm trying to do as we go through Genesis is to show you the main point. So, let's do a little exercise together, and that is we'll read through Genesis 1 through chapter 1, verse 1 through 27, and let's try to find the subject together or the topic of the passage. And we do that by finding words that are repeated. So, so think about that as we go through. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered onto one or into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called seas. 
and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them, and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the, on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So, if we were to pick one word, which word do you think is used most often in this passage that we just read? It is God. God is repeated 25 times in 27 verses. So, if we wanted to, if we came up on this conversation, okay, let's after church, someone happens to be quoting from this. The very first thing, if, if we've heard this for the very first time, is we would say that they're talking about God. Okay? Or if we, were, we came up to somebody in the grocery store and they're talking about God, you know, uh, did all these things, then we would say that they're talking about God. So finding the subject really is the first step in understanding what a passage means. Now there's a second step that is also important, and that is what is the author saying about the subject or the topic? Okay? So if the subject or topic is God then what is the author saying about God? And this is where we use some of the other words that are repeated or the concepts that are brought up in order to, to determine what the author is talking about. What is he saying about God? Well, he's saying that God created. He's saying that God created. Everything that exists was created by God. Everything that exists was created by God. And that makes sense, right? Because before God, there was nothing but God. So, for there now to be more than simply God means that God created everything that, that, that now exists. And so that's really the point of the passage. Everything that exists was created by God. 
So in this passage, we see that God made everything. We call this act of God creation. Now, if we wanted to give a definition for creation, my, my, the definition that's most helpful in my thinking came from my theology professor, Dr. McCune. And it really is very simple definition, but for me it was very profound. And that is, creation is everything that is not God. Okay, think about that for a second. Everything that is not God. And that's why I said everything that exists was made by God. Or we could say it this way. God made everything that is not God. Okay, that fills up a lot of things, doesn't it? What does it mean to create? Well, it's not to make something out of God. Okay, it doesn't mean that God's making something out of Himself. That would be pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that everything is God. Okay, you see, God, God is everywhere in creation and He's in everything. It's true, God is everywhere. And there's no part of space or, or our existence where God is not. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. But, but it's not true that, that these things, like this, this pulpit that was made from a tree, is partially God. It's, it's made with the substance of God. That's not what creation is. Rather, creation is to make something from nothing. To make something from nothing. But that's not, that's not the whole picture. Because what we find in this passage alone is that there are at least two types of creation. There is... The original creation, where God made something from nothing, that's nothing, that's in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before that time, and God created them. Now, uh, the, the second type of creation that we have to understand is that there's a subsequent or a following creation. Now, what was man made from? He was made from the dust of the ground. What was woman made from? The rib of the man, right? So God used a previously existing substance to form both of these uh, creatures. And so, so there has to be at least two types of creation. But that should not disturb us in any way. We shouldn't say, well, that's a, a lesser act for God to, ha to create uh, people out of, out of some former substance that, that's not as good. Um, because even with Adam and Eve or anything else that was created from some previous existence, it still requires the power of God. Everything still owes their existence to God. Okay, whether it be the cattle, the the creeping things that creeps on the earth, the 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 waters, or the um, animals that teem in the waters, and so on. There, in other words, they would not be in existence if it were not for the creative power of God. This creation, this act of creation, is something unique to God, by the way. The word that's used for create is not used of any other person in Scripture. It's only used of God. And so this is a special act by God. We sometimes say that we are creative. And by the way, that is one of the ways that we, are, uh, we, we show that we are made in the image of God. We are creative. We have abilities unlike animals to be able to to make uh, structures like what you're sitting in, and so on. Okay, the the uh, the ideas and abilities are endless, but we are not creative in the way that God is creative. 
we we um, are much more dependent upon uh, formerly existing things than God. Remember, when God created, He spoke these things into existence. Okay, so there is an intimate uh, there is an intimate act where God actually gets down. It seems like He He's more concerned with the way that He creates both man and woman, but He still does it through His voice, through His words. So perhaps a, a more helpful definition of creation is that for His own glory, God brought everything that is into existence. Excuse me. God brought everything that is into existence without the use of pre-existing material. So as a whole, God brought all these things into existence that were not formally there. That's the act of creation. So everything that is not God was made by God. Secondly, everything that is not God was made by the triune God. Creation is generally attributed to God the Father, and that is correct. He is the author of creation, 1 Corinthians 8.6. But we also must notice that the Spirit is active in creation as well. Look at verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We see the Holy Spirit active in creation as well, don't we? And we know from the New Testament that the Son, God the Son, was also active in creation. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things came into being through Him, Jesus. Colossians 1, 16, In Him were all things created. So we have the triune God active in creation. Thirdly, everything that was created was made in six consecutive 24-hour days. Everything that was created was made in six consecutive 24-hour days. Now, I could take a huge exit ramp here and talk to you about evolution and all sorts of other um, hybrids of ideas that, that try to take even some, this passage here and try to change what it means. There's gap theories, day-age theories. There's all sorts of theories out there as far as how long it took God to make but I won't do that. Instead, I will tell you what I believe is the truth based on a normal, literal interpretation of the Scriptures. And by the way, that is the key to understanding the creation account. You can eliminate, eliminate a lot of these false ideas about how the world came into existence by simply having a normal, literal way of understanding the Bible. And, I, and when I say that, I'm talking about what we talked about before. And that is, just listen to the conversation that Moses writes down, or listen to what's written here, in a normal way. Don't have to try to look for some deeper meaning and, and, and try to really find the magical key that will unlock it all. Just read it like you would read the newspaper. And when you do, you'll see that, that the earth was created in six consecutive 24-hour days. Let me give you three reasons why I believe that is true. Number one, every time the word day is used in Scripture, okay, every time the word day is used in Scripture with an ordinal, okay, with a number preceding it, it always refers to a 24-hour literal day. Look at verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Verse 7 at the end. Or verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Verse 13. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Every time that word day is preceded by an ordinal, a number. 
it always refers in the Scripture to a literal 24-hour day. Okay, so these people who say it took God ages and ages to make the earth. Okay, these days are really like really extended periods of time and it really happened over, even some people go as far as saying millions of years. The earth was created in six consecutive 24-hour days. Now, there is a way that the word day is used not in a literal way in the Bible and that is when it's talking about the day of the Lord. Okay, we, we were talking about this on Wednesday night, in fact, with regard to the kingdom of God. It is that time period that includes the tribulation and the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, the millennium. That whole period together is referred to in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. Now, is that one literal day? No, it's a period of time, isn't it? It's a long period of time. But the point that I'm making here is that every time it's preceded by or it's accompanied by an ordinal, uh, a number then it refers to a literal 24-hour day. And that's what you're going to find in Scripture. second reason that I think that these are six consecutive 24-hour days is that each day ends with the same phrase. There was evening and there was morning. What does that seem to suggest to you? That it's a day. Okay? Nothing spectacularly profound about that, is there? There was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. These are literal days. The best proof for six literal 24-hour days in consecutive order is found in Exodus chapter 20. Turn there with me. Exodus chapter 20, a passage you are familiar with because this is the account of the Ten Commandments. And here, God lays down an example of creation and shows why the Sabbath day is important was important for the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For... In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so God's giving them a command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Use the Sabbath day as a day of rest and a day of remembrance, a day of worship of Me. Why? Verse 11 tells us, For in six Days, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it in six days. And so, you see how He's making the parallel between a work week and what? The creation week. Okay, It's a literal week. It's a literal uh, six days in which God created the earth and He rested on the seventh. Okay, So, that's the best proof for why we have a six. Uh, why I believe it's six consecutive 24-hour days. Turn back to chapter 1 of Genesis, and we'll go through these days, um, and, and I'll make a couple comments on each of them. On day one, God made day and night. God made day and night, verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. 
and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, on each of the six days of creation, you're going to notice other repetitive words besides the word God. Words like, then God said. Right? It seems like starting with uh, day, even with day one, then God said, let there be. And it was so. Okay. There was evening and there was morning. God saw that it was good. We have these repetitive phrases that come up over and over again to help us see what, what exactly is going on. Here, what we see is that God is powerful over inanimate objects. When He speaks to them, they obey. In fact, it's quite remarkable to think about that inanimate objects are obedient to God. In fact, David says it this way in Psalm 19, verses 1-4, through 4, it, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament show His handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. It's as if they're talking about God because they, they simply reveal His glory. They, they, uh, they, they reveal God's glory. And so here we see that, that God creates the day and the night. Now, before... Before God called them day and night, they were sim- it was simply light and darkness. But notice what God does. He names His creation. And you're going to see this as we go through. He names His creation. Verse 5 says, God called the light day and the darkness He called night. So day one, God made day and night. Day two, God made an expanse to separate the waters. Verses 6-8. through What is this expanse? Verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Well, verse 8 gives us the answer, doesn't it? God names it something. It says, God called the expanse heaven. So, apparently, there is this, this uh, earth that is formless and void, made up of water somehow, and God needs to separate the lower waters from the upper waters. And he does that with something called an expanse or the heavens. The heavens were used to separate the waters that were on the earth, which we'll see are later formed into what are called seas, and the waters that make up the canopy above the earth. And uh, we see that in verse 7. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And he concludes again, Moses does, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So day and night, day one, expanse to separate the waters, or we could say heavens, day two. And day three, he made dry land, plants, and trees, verses 9-13. through 13. First of all, we see that God commands the dry land to appear, and it was so, verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. So he forms the seas and the dry lands by speaking his word. And and verse 9 concludes by saying, and it was so. There's no arguing with God. There's no, you know what? We don't really want to be formed that way. Sounds kind of silly, but but, uh, remember that we too are his creation. And uh, it's kind of silly for us to question God as well. Notice God names his, his creation here in verse 10. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So he called the dry land earth, and the waters he called sea. It's interesting to note here that we have a whole day where we have dry land, plants, 
and trees, but no sunshine. Right? When is sunshine created? Day four. So we have a whole day where where these plants are being sustained without any any of the resources that come from the sun. How could this possibly be? Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun, according to Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And there will be no need of it. Why? Because the glory of God will be our light. We will receive all that we need from the glory of God. You see, God is not bound by His creation as if, oh no, I need to get the sunshine in place before all these other things are, because otherwise they won't be able to operate properly. He's not dependent on the sunshine in order to provide growth in life. Jesus says that God cares so much about His creation that He clothes the grass of the field. He knows what they need and He can provide it. You see, the sun and and the moon and the stars actually serve the purposes of God. It's not as if God is dependent upon them. So, we have the dry land, plants, and trees on day three. Day four, sun, moon, and stars, verses 14 to 19. Then God said, Let there be lights in the, in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let, there be, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Notice their purpose beginning in verse 14. Here, God actually gives a purpose for them. It seems as if before this, the first three days, He doesn't say a whole lot of why they're there. He does say that the light's to separate the day and the darkness is to separate the night. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of why these things are here. Here in day four, He says that the sun, moon, and stars actually have a purpose. And we see several of their purposes. There's nothing here about magical powers. Okay, like the horoscopes would like to tell what would like you to believe. There's some sort of astrological power that if we just harness their power in some way, then we can really change the way that our life operates and and the way that we exist. It also doesn't say anything about these lights being gods, like the Egyptians used to believe. No, the sun and moon are not to be served. Instead, they serve God's purposes. And verse 14 gives us one of those purposes, or two of them. It is to separate the day and the night. We have this larger light, the sun, and this lesser light, the moon, to govern the day and the night. It also says in verse 14 that they will be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. It is around these these um, these lights in the heavens that are put in the heavens that we determine what a day is. It's how we determine what a year is, right? It's how, to, how we determine our seasons. And that was God's original purpose for them. Verse 15 says that they will be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. So one of the main purposes is simply to give light. Verse 16 says that the greater light will give light to the day and the lesser to give light by night. Notice the second part of verse 16 because I've, uh, I think this phrase is very interesting at the end. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. It doesn't take up too much space in the text, does it? He made the stars also. 
But think about how vast our universe is. Which star is closest to us? Anyone know? It's the sun, right? The sun is 92.3 million miles away. If we were to drive there in a car without stops for gas or coffee, it would take us 177 years to drive there. You might want to keep the window down. But we can't measure the size of the universe in miles. 193 million miles would be impossible to do it in that way. Scientists instead use light years to measure how, how big the universe is, how far these stars are away. In the time you took to blink one time, light went around the earth seven times. A light year is the distance the light travels in one year. So if we wanted to put a mile marker on the beginning of the time that light travels at, a year, at the beginning of a year and the end of the time that light took, how far it made it, it'd be 5.8 trillion miles. That's one light year. The sun is not nearly that far away. If the sun, if we were to travel the speed of light to the sun, it would take us eight minutes to get there. Okay, so, so just consider how long, how far away it is to the sun, 92.3 million miles, and then consider how long a light year is. Okay, that, that's really just eight light minutes for us to get to the sun. But our universe is full uh, of, of stars and stars that are millions of light years away. In our, uh, our, our solar system is in what galaxy? The Milky Way galaxy, right? And inside the Milky Way galaxy, or, or I guess we could say the width of our Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. The next closest galaxy, according to scientists, is about 2.7 million light years away. Scientists are still trying to find the edge of the universe, but as far as I can tell, at this point, they have determined that there are at least that, that the universe is at least 15 trillion light years across, and that it contains hundreds of billions of galaxies. At least 100 billion galaxies is what they say. And each galaxy has about 100 billion stars. I'm not sure who counted those, but, but that's what they say. For a grand total of 10 billion trillion stars. That's a one with 22 zeros after it. That's as far as scientists know right now. And yet Genesis 1.16 says, And God made the stars also as if it were nothing for him to make a universe that large. It's not something that should be uh, trite. It's not trite to him that he made all these stars because Psalm 147.4 says, He counts the number of stars and he knows them all by name. You get a sense of the wonderful, powerful, amazing Creator that we are learning about this, this evening? the Creator that you serve. Day 5, birds and sea creatures, verses 20 to 23. Verse 21 says, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. What are these sea monsters? It doesn't sound very appealing. Don't think of them as uh, scary predators that we have to be afraid of because remember what God said about His creation. 
that it was good. When he made it, it was good. It, it's probably, uh, Moses probably uses this language, sea monsters, to refer to the, the, the enormous size of these creatures. That, that they are something to be appreciated, kind of like what we're going to see in Job chapter 41 with Leviathan, this great sea creature that has a huge amount of strength and power, one that, that God says to Job, you don't want to put your hand on its head. I mean, are you that powerful, Job, that you could go to Leviathan, put your hand on its head, and not be dead, basically, is the idea? We see here a little bit about God's greatness in creating these great creatures. And notice in verse 21, you probably heard this that as I read it, after their kind. It's repeated a couple of times. After their kind. Later, God will command the animals to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This phrase, after their kind, shows us that reproduction takes place through a specific species. No, no crossing of lines. Okay, now this flies in the face of evolution, does it not? The primate, the hominoid species, could never reproduce something that turns into the homo sapiens species, human, right? That can't happen. Because God created them after their kind. That's the way it works. Day six, land animals and humans, verses 24 through 27. Land animals and humans. Then God says, let us make man in our... Uh, well, let me start with verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then, verse 26, God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. It's interesting that each creation day is weighted pretty equally. few verses for each one. Day one, day two, day, two, day three, day four, day five. When you get to day six, you have the, the short portion about how all the land animals are created. But then, what Moses does is th- from chapter 1, verse 26, all the way to verse 30, and then chapter 2, verse 4, after he talks about the day of rest, chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 25, it's all about the creation of man and woman. It seems as if what God is doing is He's slowing down to talk about what is the pinnacle of His creation, humans. God slows down. Uh, it's not that it took longer than a day. Don't get me wrong. But, but more time is spent talking about these creatures that God has made. Consider that angels were created during this week as well, were they not? Remember, what is God's creation? Everything that is not God. So angels were also created on this day. In fact, I believe that they were created on day one because, uh, is it Job? Let me find the reference here. Psalm. No. I think it is in Job. It says that, um, Job chapter 38, verses 6 and 7. We know that they were created on this day because it tells us that the morning stars or the, the angels were rejoicing at the laying of the foundation of the earth. 
Okay, so the the star it seems as if that the these morning stars, the the angels, were there when God laid the foundations of the earth. So they were created on day one. How much space does Moses give to their creation? None. How much does he spend on the creation of your species? Okay, multiple verses. This is the pinnacle of God's creation. God doesn't enter into a special covenantal relationship, by the way, with angels or animals. He enters into a special covenant relationship with humans. God didn't send His Son to die for animals or for angels. He sent His Son to die for you. That's why I say that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Well, we don't have time to talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. I will talk about that more next week. But we do see man's purpose. Verse 26 says it is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, uh, over all of the earth, rule over every creeping thing. And then later it's going to say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. The idea here is that man was to rule inside of its domain the earth. It's as if God gives man to the earth to be king over the earth. Okay, K, small king. Small K, king. Right? God is the ultimate king. But, but man is, is made to, to rule over. That's the idea that's given there. And this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we rule on behalf of God. We'll talk, about more about, uh, we'll talk more about what that means as we continue in our study. Let me give you ten, ten implications from our study this evening. Ten implications of our study, and then we'll, make, we'll look at two points of application. Number one, God simply is. There are no proofs for God here, are there? Moses doesn't begin by saying, let me give you 12 reasons why God exists. How does he begin? In the beginning, God. So when you go to witness, you don't have to stop and give them 12 reasons why God exists. The Bible doesn't do that. It simply assumes that he exists because he does. According to Romans 1, everyone knows that He exists. The ones who say they're atheists are only practical atheists. They're not really, because the Bible says that there are no such thing. All people know that there's a God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to believe in God, and that's why you have these people who are practical atheists. By the way, the only way that we can understand and believe that this account is real, according to Hebrews chapter 11, is by faith. Hebrews 11.3 says that it is by faith that we believe that the worlds were made. So you don't have to get into endless arguments with your co-worker or your family member about creationism versus evolutionism. You don't have to do that. The only way a person will accept the creation of the world is by faith. Is if God reveals it to him. In the Sunday school this morning, I said that faith is a gift. It's something that God gives to us. And so what you need to do when you come across people who are very argumentative with regard to these things is pray that God gives them faith. Show them what the truth is from the Scripture, yes. But pray that God allows them to have faith. Number two, God made everything that exists. Okay, I I can't do justice to, to what that means. I tried to do that a little bit with regard to the stars, but God made everything that exists. An amazing... Number three, there is 
one God. And yet, even though there is one God, there is a hint of complexity. Did you notice that in verse 26? Then God said, okay, then God, the one and only God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, so there is only one God. And so that means, number four, there is only one God. And yet there's this hint of complexity that there is this idea that we're going to understand later in Scripture that there is the idea of the Trinity. That there is God who exists in three persons and yet is one. And so the fact that, that there is only one God means that God is not competing with other gods in the universe. Like, let's, let me show you what I can do. God also doesn't need any help in creating the universe. You don't see any sidekicks here saying, hey, can you help me out with this? God did it all Himself. There is no other God. God is one. Next, we see that God is a speaking God. He's not just out there, some ethereal being that we got to somehow tap into. God is a speaking God. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God is a speaking God. We'll see a lot more of that as we go through the pages of Scripture, will we not? Next, we see that God is authoritative. He is authoritative. When He commands... His creation obeys. Now, if you think about that, that is an incredible thing. What all needs to take place in order for someone to obey a command? Okay, there's lots of different things that need to be uh, in place in order for someone to obey a command. Well, the person we are commanding has to be able to hear us. They can't be underwater or on the other side of the earth without a cell phone or something, the remote place. They have to be able to hear us. They have to be able to hear us in our language. right? If we told the Chinese person to do a certain thing and they didn't speak English, then it would be hard for them to obey. And they have to exist before we speak to them. And yet God speaks and His creation obeys without having any of these things in place. shows the power of God and His command. God is authoritative in the sense that He names His creation. And what we'll see is is that naming implies authority. Remember what God told Adam to do in the garden? To name all the animals? It signified Adam's authority over all those animals. In fact, we saw that, they, that he was to rule over all of them. One of the ways that he shows his rulership or his authority over them is he names them. Same thing is true about God. When he names the light day and the darkness night and the, the, the different... Uh, expanse, heaven, and so on. It shows that God has authority over them. Number eight, God made everything good. We'll talk more about this next week. God made everything good. Number nine, God is the sovereign controller over all things. He's the sovereign sovereign controller over all things. This will be unpacked as we go through Genesis, so I won't take uh, much time here. Number 10, in His creation we see God's wisdom. Isn't that the point of God's speech to Job in Job 38-41? through 41? I made my creation. I control it. How can you question me? Okay, it's not the fact that God just made it, but He also controls it all. So how can you question me, Job? So those are the implications that we see at the very least, those ten implications. And in summary, it simply means that 
God is sovereign or Lord or master over all His creation. God is Lord. He's the master over everything because He created them. This is what Jeremiah 33, verse 2 says. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is His name. Call to Me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is His name. The fact that He is Creator shows that He is Lord. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And I want to show you two responses that we should have to God's creation. Two responses. Number one, we ought to worship God. The day of rest that we'll look at next week points to our need to stop and worship God. It was not designed by God because He needed a breather, but to cause all of creation to stop, settle down, stand in awe of what just happened the previous six days. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Here is what our response should be to God's creation. Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. Okay, so what should our response be to the second half of the verse? The fact that He created all things and because of His will they existed? It should be that we exalt God. That we say to God, Worthy are You to receive all glory and honor and power and praise. Why? Because You are the Creator. That is the response that we should have to God creating all things. Second response should be that we submit to God. If God is Lord of His creation, if God made everything good, then everything that was made by God has value, either to display His glory or to accomplish His purpose or both. Everything has value. And that means that we as His creation ought to submit to God. If He is the Creator of all things, and He is, then He is the Master of all things. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That's what we just sang about. This is my Father's world. He owns it. He's the Master of it. We ought to submit to Him. And that means that we and all of our possessions belong to God. And we must submit ourselves and our possessions to Him. The response that we should have to this wondrous creation is to worship God, to praise Him for who He is and for what He has done, and to submit to Him. We are His creation. How could we ever question? How could we ever uh, turn from Him when He has done such a thing? Let me ask you to take your prayer sheets and we will turn our attention to corporate prayer.